Good morning. What a joy to be with you and sing to the Lord a new song. Praise the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if the sun is in your face, feel free to move out of the... <laughs> I can see the, the sun is starting to heat some of your eyes. Uh, it's a great joy to be at the Lord's house with you. Today is the first Lord's Day of the month. We celebrate the Lord's table. Just want to remind you the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is for those who are saved, those who are part of a local church. And if you're part of a local church, you're welcome to partake with us. That's the first Sunday of the month. It's uh, There's a principle in the Bible of the first fruits. We begin the month by giving our first portion to the Lord. What a privilege, what an honor it is to not give to the Lord the leftover, right? But give the first fruits and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know one thing you deserve, Lord. It's all yours. And I also want to remind you that next Lord's Day, we will, will be at the courthouse gym, Lord willing. So downstairs where we first met before. So thank you, Brian Betsy, for hosting us, having us. Uh, thank you. Please open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and we will be reading until chapter 2, verse 4. Please stand up if you can. Here's the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy in accordance of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. It was Luther, Martin Luther, who said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me 
It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. So, Lord, we say amen. Your word is alive. Your word has power to conquer our hearts and change us. So help us. Help us to humble ourselves before you. And as beggars, we ask for bread. Give us bread, Lord. We are hungry for you. Speak to us. Lay hold of us. Run after us. For the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a very sad story about a church in Dallas. And this church was a big church and went through a major split, a church split in Dallas. And as they were in the process of the church split, big confusion, argumentation for which party would have the church building. So they filled a law, they filed a lawsuit to claim the church property, the parties. A judge finally referred the matter to the higher authorities because he, the judge said, I, I cannot be dealing with this, so you, you, you need to get your religious authorities to deal with that. So they were able to have a church court and they assembled to hear both sides of the case. They awarded the church property to one of the factions, and then you know what happened to the other factions. They just went ahead and started a new church. But what is fascinating is once the church court heard the case and they started digging in to see what was the cause of the division, they found out that the split originated during a church dinner. And one of the elders received a smaller slice of ham than one of the little kids who was sitting by his side. So because the boy got a bigger slice of ham than one of the elders, you know what happened. Many of the greatest threats to the unity of the church come not from outside, but from inside the church. We might laugh. We might say, how can a church, a big church, be divided because of a slice of ham? And we know that the problem is not the amount of ham, but the amount of sin in people's hearts. How many fights, quarrels happen because of small things, very small things, that suddenly become gigantic things. And that's what sin always does. Sin loves to magnify offenses against you. Sin is a magnifying glass when it comes to personal offenses. Sin is capable of making your desires, your ways, your likes, your feelings, so big, so huge, and so vital that as soon as your desires, your feelings, your wants are not accomplished or fulfilled, what happens? You feel entitled to make everyone else suffer with you. 
And sin not only magnifies silly and petty things. Think about how many arguments you have had and and then you stop to think and you say, that was silly. That was really foolish to argue about that. Sin not only magnifies silly and petty things, but sin also distorts and disfigures you. Sin makes you so big, so important, so big, that you start resembling a beast. It's all about you. It's all about me. That's what sin does. And suddenly, you become just like a beast, a dragon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel? Me, I, me, I. And then what happens? All right, you're behaving just like a beast. So here, you're going to be a beast for a while. The problem with that church was not the size of the slice of him, but the size of the self-centeredness of the elder and the people who joined the elder. To have a party to join you, to argue with others because of the slice of him, that shows how blind they, they were. So the problem of disunity in the church it's not the liturgy of the church, the style of preaching, the color of the walls, the chairs, the building, but the heart. Problems of disunity in the church, in the home, is the heart. Oh, after he got that job, things went downhill in our marriage. The problem is not the job. The problem is the heart of that person. It's so easy to blame everything outside when in reality the problem is inside. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. He's going straight to the heart. He targets the heart of the Christians. And he demands that our hearts must be aligned with Christ's heart in order for us to maintain the unity in the church. So context is important. We know that Paul is dealing with the subject of unity. Unity dominates the thinking of Paul here. And one scholar, he says, These verses here in Philippians, these verses bring us the strongest possible appeal for Christian unity. The kind of appeal or exhortation that many Christians seem prone not to take very seriously today. My prayer is that we will take very seriously the appeal of Paul in these verses here. So, the outline, I'll briefly, very briefly, review the grounds of our unity. That's verse 1. Then we saw last Lord's Day the nature of church unity or the nature of our unity. Verse 2, unity of conviction and unity of affection. And now we will start working through verses 3 and 4. The preservation of church unity. So the grounds of church unity, the nature of church unity, and then the preservation of church unity. And Paul divides verses 3 and 4 in two parts. You have things that you must mortify, you must put to death, and there are things you must vivify. You must maintain alive in order to have church unity. So let's just briefly review here what we saw already. 
verse 1, and in verse 1, so if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any communion of the Spirit, and any affection and compassion, we know that Paul is laying the grounds for church unity. Church unity was accomplished by Christ. It's given to the church. We have the comfort in Christ. We have the consolation from the Father. We have the communion of the Spirit, affection, compassion. So that's the ground. So that's why Paul now can present his appeal. Complete my joy. That's the nature of church unity, starting verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, one soul, one mind. And you remember, we saw that last Lord's Day. What does church unity look like? What is the nature of church unity? We all dress alike. We all eat the same food. We all read the same books. No. The nature of church unity is unity of conviction and unity of affection. What we believe and the love that holds us together. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Even the way he structures is beautiful. Uh, affection, remember affection without conviction leads to what? Superficial sentimentality. So a church that's all affection without conviction, pretty soon will be torn apart. And a church that has only conviction but not affection, well, we have harshness, lack of humility. There is no carrying each other's burden. So that's what church unity looks like. Verse 2, a unity of conviction. A unity of affection. Now let's move to the preservation of church unity. So we saw, especially verse 1, we saw earlier when you saw the gravity of the unity of the church, how Jesus gave the unity to the church. He died to make his church one. John chapter 17, remember? Ephesians he died. In his death, he brought into one his people. He provided the unity of the church. So there is one aspect of our unity that's granted to us. It's a gift from God. We don't make the unity of the church. Christ made the unity of the church. We don't create the unity of the church. Christ created the unity of the church. Amen? That's very important. But, it's vital for us to understand that though it's a gift, He gives us the duty, so with the privilege, always comes responsibility, right? To whom much is given, much is required. So, the degree of privilege comes with a degree of responsibility. And He gives us the responsibility of maintaining that unity, keeping the unity that He has purchased with His blood. So the maintenance of the unity is required from every single member of the church. Look at what Paul says, and you can turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. It's a wonderful passage, very similar to Philippians here. Paul says, 
I therefore, wanting chains for the Lord, urge you, exhort you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that? Salvation. The effectual call of God in your life. Saving you. Rescuing you. He called us out of darkness, Peter says. That's the calling. And here how we are supposed to walk in a manner that matches, that's in accordance with our salvation. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then what? Eager. Eager. The word refers to an intense effort and motivation. Eager to keep or retain or maintain the unity, the harmonious, the oneness of the church given by the Spirit. That's why he says of the Spirit. Because it's given by the Spirit of Christ. With the chains of peace. See the bonds. But that's the same Greek word that Paul used earlier for him. As one in chains for the Lord. Now he talks about the chains of peace. One scholar says. Ralph Martin. He says. So the unity is a divine gift. But it must be cultivated. And cherished. As Christians live together in harmonious relationships, such unity is made fast with chains of peace forged by Christ's reconciling work. So each member of the church, we all, we all have the responsibility, the duty of doing what? Maintaining, preserving, keeping what? The harmony that the Spirit of Christ has given to the church. Every single member here, every single member, Carson, David, Rachel, Susan, we all have the duty, the responsibility of being eager, not just keeping the unity, being eager, motivated, zealous, to maintain this unity that Christ bought for his church. So then how is this unity going to be preserved? You have some of the ways in Ephesians chapter 4. But we are not in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. And Paul tells us how this unity is going to be preserved. How we are supposed to be zealous to preserve this unity. And it's just... This whole section is beautiful how Paul is structured. We miss in, in English, but in Greek it's beautiful. The three strophes that he has, four lines each. And you can see, uh, I, I put here so you can see just how he starts each line with the same word. And he says, nothing, nothing, not one thing, according to selfishness. Nothing according to empty glory, but with humble conviction, considering each other superior to yourselves. Not each one of you looking for your own interests, but also for those of each other. And you see, as Paul is structuring here, that there is one main attitude that will keep the church in unity. And that's humility. 
there is no way to preserve the unity of the church without humility. That's what he's doing here. Look at verse 3 and 4 and tell me that you cannot see humility there. That's his call. And then what, what is he going to do in the next verses? Look to Jesus and his humility. That's the humility that's required to keep the unity in the church. But humility will be manifested. So how, how is this humility manifested? It's man manifested through actions. Amen. You can't say I'm a humble person. And you show no humility. Humility must be manifested through actions, attitudes, behaviors. How do we know that a person is humble, lives in humility? Because he hides himself in his room all day long? I remember talking to a person, he said, I need to grow in love. I have been asking God to grow myself in love for other people. And I said, but you're not a part of a church. You're asking for the impossible. It's like, how can you ask to grow in love if you're not in relationship with other people? How are you going to show love if you're not in relation, relationship with other people? So the same with humility. How do we know? But through actions. Amen. And that's what Paul does here. He shows us that humility in the life of the church will be manifested by two, two different attitudes or actions that we must take. One is to put to death or put off some behaviors, some attitudes that are not matching with the gospel. And at the same time, we must put on or vivify or cultivate some other aspects. So Paul, beautifully here, he's going to put the finger into our hearts. And that's a div divine intrusion, I would say, to help us with preventive diagnosis of future harm, harmful disease. That's what Paul is doing here. He's just like a doctor. He's putting the finger in our hearts and helping us with diagnosis that will help to prevent some disease in the future, some sickness in the future. And he goes straight to our heart. And look at verse 3. First of all, nothing. Nothing from selfishness. And that's why I'm saying... The first way for us to cultivate humility is we must mortify, we must put to death some things in our lives. And that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. You read the New Testament and often you, you hear that the authors of the New Testament say, clothe yourself with Christ, put on the new man, put off the old man. What is that? Put to death. We need, that. that's sanctification, amen? That's just mortification. It's another name for sanctification, putting off. And a lot of this language, when you go through the New Testament, you see the language of putting off, put off, malice, pride, 
sexual immorality. That, that was language using the baptism of the Christians. In the same way that they would remove those garments in, in order to enter the pool, the water, to be baptized, they would be, be, be saying that, so like these garments that you're removing, sexual immorality, pride, gossip, greed, all must be put off. Mortified. The old Adamic garments must be put off because now you're going to put on Christ. And we live a life of putting off and putting on. Mortifying and vivifying. Amen? Has anybody here who has reached the point of saying, I don't need to put off anything in my life. I don't need to mortify any sin in my life. We have not been glorified yet. So that's ABCs of Christian life. The old garments must be put off. And the new garments of Christ must be put on. So look how Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul opens now how they're going to preserve the unity of the church with a negative. The Greek actually begins with a negative. No, nothing, 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 nothing from selfish ambition. The word for selfish ambition Selfishness, you have there, erytheia, even the word sounds like a disease, erytheia, erytheia, you can say, sounds more like a disease, <laughs> right? Refer to selfishness, uh, some translations have selfish ambition, rivalry, the word was actually first used for a one-day labor. So the person who would work just one day, and he would receive that name. So first of all, that was used for, and then later was used for those who would work just for wages. And you might say, how is that? How is that a bad thing? Right? The guy is working. Why are you going to call him an Erythea? He's working for his wages. What is the problem with that? Jesus helps us to understand the idea behind his word when he says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at that. He who is a hireling, he who is a hired man, a hired hand, and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Here's why. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So you understand why the idea became of a selfish person. Because he would just be working for the day. So who cares about the owner's equipment? The owner's vineyard? That's not mine. I'm just here to do my job. If you get hired one day to take care of a sheep, a flock of sheep, and you see the, the wolf coming, no way, man, I'm not going to lay down my life for these sheep. They're not even mine. Do you see how the idea became of a selfish person? The one who'd work just for the day? Because he's just thinking about his own gain, his own money. It's not mine. And so many people, they come to church with the same mentality. 
What can I get here? What are you going to give me? What am I getting here? How am I going to feel comfortable here? How are you going to bless me? And then as soon as there is something that disturbs the comfort, what does the person do? I'm out of here. No love for laying down the life for something that's his or hers. That's the idea of a selfish person. And selfishness is, is the DNA of sin. Think about sin and how sin is manifested through selfishness. It's all about me. Adam and Eve in the garden. It's not about God. It's about us. Sin is manifested in selfishness and that desire to honor, satisfy, and please the self above all others. That's what sin does. Sin places me in the center of all creation. I become the center of all creation. That's selfishness. I'm the king. I'm on the throne. My will be done. Isn't that selfishness? You dethrone God out of the throne. You dethrone others and you say, hey, the whole world is about me. Serve me. Make me feel good. That's selfishness. And that's the word that Paul is using here. That cannot be in the church. And what's heartbreaking and really hard to do in the church is that our culture and society celebrate and exalt the self. It's all about yourself, your self-esteem, selfie, how to be your own self. If your spouse, children, family, and friends are not helping you to be yourself, what do you do? Leave them. If the baby that you have in your belly will not help you be yourself, what do you do? Kill the baby. And that's just moving with force in the church. And more and more you see counseling the church. Oh, you need to be yourself. If talking to couples, you need to be yourself. Couples having problems with children. No, you need to let, let the children be themselves. You cannot impose your Christian views on your children. They need to decide what they want. You cannot impose your morals on them. Marriage is having problem. Oh, here, man, you need to let your wife be herself. Live her life. It's all about me. And then you come to the gospel. The gospel is all about what? Not you. <laughs> Not you at all. According to these scriptures, people who live a lifestyle of selfishness will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I have here Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Look at that. The works of the flesh are not hiding under a, a tree. It's hard to see. Oh, it's really hard to see if that person is behaving according to the flesh or not no 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 paul says that the works of the flesh are evident even with your eyes closed you can see the works of the flesh 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, tantrums. And look at the Erithea. Selfishness or rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we live in a culture that people live these lives, and as soon as they die, we tell everyone that, oh, they are in heaven, they are with the king of kings now. They will not inherit the kingdom of God living this lifestyle. And some translations have the, the word, the Greek word, erithei, as rivalry. Why rivalry? I was thinking about rivalry. The main idea is selfishness. Why is translating as rivalry? And think about selfishness. Everything that stands on the way of your will being done becomes what? A rival. Every time something will not promote your self-interest. Every time someone is not helping you fulfill your desire, your wants, suddenly they become what? Your enemy. I can't believe you're behaving like that. Not fulfilling my will. Therefore, you must be my enemy, my rival. This is selfishness. And suddenly we start treating our spouses, our children, our parents, our fellow dear brothers and sisters in Christ as what? Rivals, enemies. Because my will is not being done. And selfishness is the most antisocial sin. Contrary to our culture where selfishness is what promotes social media. Social media is all about being selfish, right? My pictures, my life, it's all about me. And if somebody says anything negative about me, I will hate you, I will dislike you, I will block you. But actually, sin is the most antisocial. Selfishness is the most antisocial sin. You cannot live with selfish people. And then you come to church, and the church is a social institution. We've got to socialize with people. Then you understand how Paul says the first thing, nothing from selfishness. Otherwise, there would be no unity whatsoever in the church. Thomas Reiner, he writes, Selfish ambition or selfishness brings discord, for it does not focus on the good of others, but grasps after honor and praise for oneself. That's why Paul says, nothing, nothing, nothing from selfishness. But not only selfishness. There is another thing that Paul tells us that we must put to death. Okay, that do nothing from selfish ambition and nothing from, I'm translating as vainglory. Vainglory. Another prohibition here, another aspect, attitude that must be mortified. This word is interesting because it's 
compounded of two words, keno, that means empty, and doxia, that means glory. There we, we have doxology, doxia. So empty glory, that's the actually meaning of the word here. Do nothing from selfishness and nothing from empty glory, vainglory. What is that? Vainglory. I think about the, the whole concept of God's glory in the scriptures. What is God's glory? The word, the Hebrew word kavod literally, literally means heaviness. How weighty is the attributes of God. And the heavier something is, the more value it has. The heavier the piece of gold that you have, what happens? The more value that gold has... The more precious metal you have in a bag, and that bag is getting heavier and heavier, the more worth that belongs to the bag. So that's the same with God. His heaviness, His attributes, His holiness, it's so heavy. And that reflects the worthiness of His character. A person who acts according to canodoxia, empty or vainglory, is a person who, who sees himself or herself as heavy with importance, heavy with significance, heavy with dignity, but in reality, he is empty of all these things. As one scholar says, it refers to a vain or exaggerated self-evaluation. It's the pursuit of honor and admiration that's void, hollow, and baseless because it's self-focused. The ESV has conceit, and it's, I had no idea, so I, I opened the dictionary to know what conceit, where it comes from, the meaning of the word, the English word conceit. The Merriam-Webster says, excessive appreciation of one's own worth. Or virtue. So it's very similar. Excessive appreciation of one's own worth. Do you see the, the heaviness? But you're just creating that heaviness. You don't have all that worth. But you think you do. And you treat others as you do. A person who acts with kenodoxia, vainglory, is a person who you fight, one scholar says, is a person who will fight to prove his ideas are right, always right, in order to get what? Glory. A vainglorious person is one who is constantly trying to prove how his ideas, his ways, his desires, and his likes are always the best ones. And he will show his glory by arguing and arguing with other people in order to prove how his ideas are the right ones. And Paul will play. Paul is playing with the words here. Kenodoxia. Because pretty soon in the next verses he's going to talk about one who. Keno. He emptied himself. And by emptying himself he received what? Doxa. Glory. So the following verses. So Paul says do nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from vainglory. Some people have the lifestyle of arguing with others. 
They love arguing in order to win arguments. Why are you arguing? Because I need to win this argument. Why? To prove how good I am, how glorious I am. Argumentative people are often people who are selfishly pursuing their own glory. A glory which is actually empty. So here is my homework for all of us. Study case, <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> Here's our homework. Study your life. Every time you complain or argue, dispute, dispute examine to see why you are complaining. Why you are trying to argue. I'm not talking about disagreements. We might have disagreements. But why are you arguing and complaining? I firmly believe that the great majority of the times you will find yourself pursuing your own glory. An empty glory. Arguing with people. Why? My ways, my ideas are the right ones. And I must receive the glory. And that destroys unity in the church. You become so obnoxious, so annoying, nobody wants to be around you argumentative people you know that they will always have something to argue with you so when you're arguing your case bickering debating quarreling arguing here's the question whose glory are you seeking whose glory are you seeking when you're arguing at home Children, when they are arguing with their parents. Parents, when they are arguing with their children. And arguing between parents. At work, at school, at church. Why are you arguing? What is the purpose? Is that so your glory may be manifested? Or are you seeking the Lord's glory? And let me tell you, when we think... Hey, how is that promoting the Lord's glory? 98% of the time, you're going to step back and say, actually, that's not worthy arguing. Here's another one that Paul gives us. It says, verse 4, let me go back here. It says, let each of you so those are the things we must put to death. Selfishness, vainglory, and now he gives another one, self-focus. Let each of you, each one of you, each one of us, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The third behavior or attitude that must be mortified is Selfish looking out for one's own interest to the exclusion of the interest of others. You are to put to death that sinful tendency of aiming and targeting only your things. My preferences, my likes, my dislikes. The Greek word for look here. Escopel. 
that's where we get the English word scope, to consider, to regard as one's aim. And you're aiming at something, you have what? All your attention there, right? When you're aiming at something, you have all your focus and your attention there. Do you know what sin does with our eyes? Bring our eyes to ourselves. If we could flip our eyes backwards, <laughs> you'd see what sin does to you. You'd just be looking to yourself. That's what sin does. Aiming at your likes, my ways, my desires. Sin causes us to target only our own things and interests. And here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel comes and does what? Changes that. Removes the eyeball that's so self-focused. And put eyes in you that now you can look at others just like Jesus. So Paul says to other churches. So for example, to the church in Corinth. Let no one seek his own good but that of others. And in the same letter, Paul says that love does not seek its own. True love is not selfish. It does not look at only your own personal interests. So, we see what Paul is commanding, demanding from the church in order for the church to be able to preserve the unity that Christ has given to his bride. Nothing from selfishness. Nothing, nothing, nothing from selfishness. Nothing, 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 nothing from vainglory. My glory. No, 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 no. And never, never aiming only at my own interests. So I'd like to apply that to our lives in this church. How can we apply this into the life of our church here? So I want to give three applications of this mortification. First of all, be careful, be careful with the selfish desire for a place of recognition in the church for yourself or for someone else. Be careful with a selfish desire for a place of recognition in the church for yourself or for someone else that you really like. The selfish desire for a place of recognition, publicity in the church. In Mark chapter 10, please turn there with me. In Mark chapter 10, there is this sad story about James and John. And you remember what happens to James and John. There's another character in this story. Who is the other character? Mummy. Yeah, mummy's in this story too. And mummy comes with the with the the full approval of the two babies who are actually grown up men and ask Jesus for what? A place of recognition, a place of honor in the kingdom for her two babies. Pursuing selfishly the place of recognition. And do you remember what happens? 
Look at verse 41. And when the ten, the other disciples, heard it about it, they began to be furious at James and John. What happened to the unity of the disciples? It's harmed. The unity here is being harmed. Why? Selfishly pursuing places of recognition in the church. Glory. When carnal ambition and self-focus is vivified, unity is mortified. When carnal ambition and self-focus is vivified, unity is mortified. So we all must be careful with selfish ambition when it comes to the places of leadership, places of recognition in the church. Sometimes not just you who are pursuing. Maybe it's another member of the church. And there is that thing in, in, in that person's heart. Why isn't so-and-so in leadership? He should be in leadership. Suddenly start creating a fire. Why? Why isn't he in leadership? Because he wants a place of honor and recognition for the other brother. Ignoring completely the consideration of the elders. That becomes a selfish thing. Why am I not in leadership? Why am I not a deacon? Why am I not an elder? Why am I not standing there playing, singing? Why are they not praising me publicly? So we must always ask ourselves, do I desire more public recognition? Do you become jealous when others receive more attention than you? Are you jealous and envious of the place of influence of others? Do you cultivate bitterness when your faithful labor or ideas are not publicly recognized? They never gave me the honor. That was my idea. They never mentioned my name. Or I gave this wonderful idea to the leaders and they completely ignored that idea. That's the pursuit of selfish vainglory. And we must put to death. When you note, when you notice, when you observe a little weed of this type of thinking, you must remove it. You must remove it. James says, please open your Bibles to James. James chapter 3, right after Hebrews, before 1 Peter. Starting verse 13, James chapter 3, verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, Erithea, in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, there it is, Erithea, exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He continues, But the wisdom from above is first pure, holy, and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder with your thoughts, with your words. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here it is. May the Lord grant us, help us to have the heavenly wisdom that has no erytheia, selfishness, vainglory. Second, we all must be careful with the selfish desire to look only to our own interest when it comes to church decisions. We must be careful with the selfish desire to look only to our own interests when it comes to church decisions. Imagine if every decision, every step that the church is taking, the only thought that comes to your mind is, how is that going to affect me? Me, 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 I, myself. How would we be able to live in harmony when every single situation, every single decision is analyzed through the lenses of myself, the great almighty me, the number one myself, my feelings, my preferences, my inclinations, me, my. How can a church work like that? How can a church function like that? It's impossible to have unity with this attitude. So that's why Paul says, no, 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 no. Do not look only at your own interests. You can't. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing, nothing in a church meeting. When decisions are made as to location of the church building, when dealing with the church budget, the color of the building, the liturgy of the church, the Bible studies that we have, when dealing with those whom the church supports or will support as missionary, nothing, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition. My desire, my way, my will, that destroys the harmony of the church.
And how easy it is when the church announces something for you to think only about yourself. I can't believe they made this decision. Do you know how that's going to affect the almighty me here? So, nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Remember you are in a body. Remember you have leaders who pray and labor for you, who are thinking about you, taking into consideration many things that you probably never thought. And there are many things you think and help us thinking through. But never, never do things out of selfish ambition. Vainglory. Can you believe that now I have to drive 40 minutes instead of 30 minutes to church? Can you believe that he painted the church walls with the nasty blue? I hate that blue. We don't have this problem, thank the Lord. <laughs> but I know of churches who have had this problem. It's me, my likes. Third, the last point here. Be careful with the promotion of your, your own personal preferences and convictions about secondary or tertiary issues. Be careful with the promotion of your personal preferences and convictions about secondary and tertiary issues. The Bible is very clear that there are the things of First importance. First Corinthians 15. I proclaim to you the things of first importance. And what is that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the things of first importance that united us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was raised on our behalf. He's seated on the throne reigning. He gave us His Holy Spirit. That's what unites us. Amen. And we all here in this church, we all have different inclinations, different preferences, different convictions in many different areas of life. We do. Politics, right, left. I want a monarchy. We have all different people. Libertarianism comes to vaccination. Never, always, oh, sometimes. Guns, sports, family traditions. Never celebrate Christmas. We gotta celebrate Christmas. Birth procedures, home birth, C-section, midwifery. You can only have a baby this manner. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Music. Style of music. Everybody must love and then you say, I know Luke likes, likes reggae. Everybody must enjoy reggae. Entertainment. How about medicine or medical procedures? Only homeopathy. Only allopathy. Only naturopathy. We got to be careful. Higher education, it's a waste of time and money. you got to go pursue higher education. 
We all have convictions, inclinations. All these things are part of your own interests. You have these interests. I have my interests. And we can share. We can share with each other in a humble, in a gentle way. Right? That's very important. I can share with you some things that I like, some things that I think work for me. But now imagine, I know that Matt and Tom, likes go they like golfing. Imagine me saying, golfing is such a waste of time. How can you go golfing? How rude that is. How mean that is. I know that so-and-so likes kneading. <laughs> what a waste of time, kneading. Do something to our life. And we, a lot of times we do that. The way we say about certain things. We speak as with the authority of those of the things of first importance. And that starts harming the unity of the church. These things do not and did not draw us together. Amen. These things did not draw us together. What drew us together and what holds us together is the gospel of Jesus. So we must stop using that platform that God gave us in order to impose our interest on others. It's a heartbreaking thing when we start using the unity that God gave us in order to start imposing our own convictions, inclinations, ideas on secondary, tertiary things that are not the gospel. There are people whom you talk, and every time you talk, they bring it up to reviews. Here, read this, listen to this. Every single time, they're trying to evangelize you and convert you to their inclinations, to their preferences. I remember, there was a member, every single sermon I finished preaching, that member would come to me and talk about the so-called evils of vaccination. She was able to connect every single sermon to something that she read about vaccination. There is a time I was trying to hide because I knew she was coming to me after I preached and I would be <laughs> getting some of the guys say, just stand here because it's just becoming unbearable. And it's not that I don't have my convictions. I have my convictions. I know what I believe. But that's not the thing that brought us together. I cannot be imposing these things on others. That's what happens uh, many times. MLM's business, the, the pyramid. Uh, suddenly, you have such a good relationship. I remember this friend of mine, Joe. We had such a good relationship. But suddenly, every time you're talking, he's trying to sell me Melaluca. <laughs> you got to use Melaluca. That will help with this. And, and suddenly, you're, hey, uh, 
I'm glad you're convicted about that, but it's just harming our relationship. Because I don't want to spend time with you anymore. Every time we're together, talk about Melaleuca. And how good that is, and how you should be selling that. And uh, no, thank you. It's honestly harming our unity. Let me tell you, I love soccer. Soccer for, I say soccer for the backsliders. It's football. <laughs> David, here's an Englishman. You guys can ask him. Football. Football. Here's, you just ask the Englishman. He knows English better than you guys. Okay? You guys play American football. I love soccer. Let me use the language there. As a missionary. <laughs> but can you, uh, you know what? Many Sundays I go home in the afternoon. I'm really tired. And I get to watch some football. Some soccer. Relax. But can you imagine if every time I meet with you, I get together with you, I'm trying to make you a convert Oh, so you got to watch soccer. Stop with American football. Soccer is so good. Watch this. Come here. Watch this one here. Next time we meet, I bring another YouTube video. Watch it. You're going to be like, hey, that's really harming our relationship here. But that's what we do. And that's what we do. We do... S- with politics, taxes, medical treatments, remedies, conspiracy theories, buying gold. I have seen churches being divided because there was the, the group that was requiring everyone to buy gold. You need to buy gold. And that became of first importance. And other people are like, stop with that. When a scholar says the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of true differences of opinion. We all have differences of opinion. But the true obstacle is selfishness. Is when I have the different opinions and I believe that everyone else must have my opinions. That's the problem. So, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I have seen churches divided. Why? Because people are just looking at their own interests and try to impose their interests, their things on other people. Those are my things, therefore must be your things now. And that harms the unity, the harmony of the church. So sometimes you see churches split in half. One group is the group of the wives that work outside the home. The other group is the group of wives who work inside the home. And there's this rivalry. One group is the group that believes only in classical education. Then you have the other group. Oh, the kids should be in public school, evangelizing the the other little pagans. 
And then you have a divided church. And we start imposing things that did not bring us together on other people as if that was supposed to keep us together. What brought us together is what's going to keep us together. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What brought us together was the self-forgetfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that will keep us together is when we start forgetting about ourselves and thinking more about each other. What brought us together is the gospel of Jesus. And I have here, the gospel is the wonderful news that Jesus Christ did nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from vainglory, nothing from empty conceit, Jesus, Jesus did not aim at his own interest, but he looked to our interests. This is the beautiful news of the gospel that brought us together and will keep us together. And the beauty of the gospel is that it has power to transform us. That's the, the beauty of the gospel is not just a, a message, but it's a message with power that comes and changes our hearts transform us it changed our eyes now we can look at other people's interests new minds to consider others as more important than ourselves that's the beauty of the gospel because of our union with Christ Paul can command us and demand us to mortify these sins because we are united with the one who is the emblem, who is the personification of doing nothing from selfishness, doing nothing from self-empty glory. He is the emblem of the one who was not looking at his own interests, but looking at our interests. And because you are in union with Jesus, that's why Paul must demand from all of us to be like Christ. Christ has paid the price. He has changed our hearts. He has died for us. He has given you a new heart. Therefore, now you can live like that. Go and live like that. And I know some of you have not embraced Christ. And you're living a life of selfishness, living a life of vainglory, living a life they are just looking at our own interests. And Christ has arms, his heart wide open, just say, come to me, come to me. Let me show you a better life. So run to Christ. Today's the day. The Bible says today's the day, not tomorrow. Today's the day to run to Christ. Embrace him who is the emblem of self-forgetfulness who did nothing from selfish ambition. And we are so privileged this Lord's Day to stop and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper but the ordinance from God, the command from Jesus himself for the church to stop, sit at his table, look at each other in the eyes, and give thanks and praise Him that He 
was not thinking only about himself. That's what you're doing. When you're holding the elements, the bread, the cup, that's what you're proclaiming. Here is the emblem of self-forgetfulness, Jesus Christ. And that's why we are united. Because he forsook his own self-interest. And that's what we are celebrating here. So Lord, we, as we prepare ourselves to partake of this wonderful ordinance, the Lord's table, we ask you to help us. Because of our union with you, Jesus, we are able to put to death selfishness, vainglory, self-focus. And that's what we beg you this morning. Change us, working us. Lord, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds. Help us to do this with thankfulness and joy for the work you have done on our behalf. And the joy of knowing that we no longer need to live selfish lives, Lord. Because of the selfless one. So prepare our hearts. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen.